this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Anne Sheehan. Anne wears many hats, including a board director at L Brands and a senior advisor to PJT Cambreview. In this episode, which was recorded on May 22, 2020, we will focus on Anne's role as chair of the SEC Investor Advisory Committee and on some recent developments on disclosure of ESG risks. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Anne. Thank you. Pleasure to be here and to chat about an issue that I care very deeply and passionately about on behalf of investors. Before getting into the specifics, can you tell us a little bit about the history and mandate of the Investor Advisory Committee? Yes, absolutely. Um, the Investor Advisory Committee was created under Dodd Frank, the financial reform bill back in 2012, I think it was finally, 2011, it was finally passed by Congress. Mm-hmm. And it created a statutory Investor Advisory Committee to the SEC to provide recommendations on investor issues specifically. It grew out of a advisory committee that then chair Mary Shapiro had created just administratively. And the other commissioners in Congress felt that it would be good to have a permanent statutory committee that was designated for the commission to really provide information on investor issues. And it grew out of the financial crisis in terms of did investors have the information that they needed? What were some suggestions that could come out of a committee like this for the SEC to improve disclosures, to make sure the views of investors were feeding into their proposed rulemaking? The remit of the committee is the ability to make recommendations to the commission on issues of interest to investors. So it's a very broad mandate that we have under the Dodd-Frank Act. So I know that you chair the committee, uh, but who is the committee uh, comprised of? The committee is comprised of asset owners, asset managers, academics. Um, We have an individual from the labor funds, the Mm -hmm. Consumer Federation, a very broad cross-section of those involved in the investor world. Um, There are 22 members of the committee, two of them, 23 members, three of them are statutory, the investor advocate at Mm -hmm. the SEC, which was a position that was created in Dodd-Frank, also a representative from the state securities administrators, because very much at the state level, they deal with investor issues and retail investor issues, and then also a representative of a senior organization. We currently have a representative from AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, who sits on the committee. So those are the three statutory appointees, and then the others are all, like myself, were um, nominated to the committee by the commission. And as I say, it's a broad cross-section of individuals representing investors, buy side, sell side, pension funds, asset owners, asset managers, academics, and others. Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to um, having you share what happened this week uh, with such a diverse committee and so many perspectives from so many different um, sectors. But um, Before we do that, the the committee's ambit is, of course, much broader than ESG disclosure or human capital management. Um, But I'd like to zero in on the SEC's traditional approach to mandatory disclosure of ENS risks historically. Yeah. um, 
traditionally they and historically, as you know, the securities laws are based on disclosure of information and it's material information under sort of the legal definition of, you know, if a like-minded investor felt that piece of information was critical to an investment decision. So it really is an evolving definition of materiality. What investors really have focused on is material decision useful comparable and consistent information. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons we've looked at more disclosure and whether it's principles-based or line item, meaning specific mandates on disclosure, all of it is within that framework of materiality and what is material information that needs to be disclosed by issuers or businesses that the investors have access to that information. So I appreciate and find very compelling the arguments that, that you and other um, others have made with respect to certain ENS risks being material. Um, however, the SEC has been uh, particularly reluctant to mandate disclosure of environmental and social risks. And I just wanted to ask you, what, what do you think underlies that reluctance? Well, I think particularly a couple of a couple of things I would say. One is the the old adage, one size does not fit all. You mm-hmm. know, should does every company face the same type of risks? Now, certainly on financial risk, absolutely. But I think for some of these other types of risk, they do differ. And so one of the um, approaches has been sort of a principles based. You know, what are kind of like the risks that are identified in the MDNA? What are some of the risks that that individual company faces? But there are some risks that all companies, and we get into this on human capital, some risks, you know, if you're not treating your workforce well, if you have a terrible safety record in certain areas, you know, what is the remuneration policy you're retraining? So there are certain types of information. I think investors feel that a little more specificity would be helpful while still maintaining a principles-based approach. A few years ago, the um, SEC actually did in a um, uh, proposed disclosure rule talk about climate change Mm -hmm. risk disclosure and for companies to put in what they see are risk to them from climate change. We've seen much more disclosure from companies in that regard. So that followed kind of a principles-based, but left it up to the individual company to determine how to disclose that risk, whether it's an insurance company, whether it's an oil and gas company, whether it's a bank company, whether loan a banking industry, whether their loans may be exposed to certain industries that could be more at risk because of climate change. So I think there are ways that the SEC can go about the principles-based framework for greater ESG disclosure without making it one-size-fits-all, but still giving that decision-useful material information to investors. But I think they're reluctant to, I think many of them feel that it'll be line-item disclosure on every single item of ESG, and I don't think that's what investors are looking for. I think they're looking for more, a little more specificity with regard to disclosure by some companies and a nudge by the SEC to encourage that disclosure. That, that certainly makes sense. I'd like to drill a bit deeper into human capital management in particular, and perhaps you could take us to um, the recent past. Um, so um, what did traditionally line item, um, let me try that one more time, uh, 
I wanted to transition to human capital management in particular and have you take us to the recent past. What does item or what did item 101 of Reg SK require with respect to disclosure? Well, as you know, it actually requires only the the number, total number of employees. It specifically says the number of persons employed by the registrant. So that is the only information right now that is required, regulatorily required, that a company disclose. Now, that disclosure goes back many years, and I think it really grew out of the disclosure regime about what information is helpful to investors going back to, you know, pre-2000 and the 70s and 80s by the commission. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very little information. And I think at the time that that was disclosed, much more of the intangibles of companies were physical uh, um, assets as opposed Mm -hmm. to human capital assets. You know, you have financial capital, you have human capital, and you have physical capital. Um, As the world has evolved and how industry has evolved, much more of the value of companies is in intangible assets. And one of those intangibles would be human capital, the intellectual half, the employees that you have. So I think investors are looking much more to get more nuanced information about that human capital because it is more of an intangible. It is one of the makeups of the intangible assets of companies nowadays that then can create value if it is managed well on behalf of investors, or if that capital is not managed well, and you have turnover in the workforce, you have safety problems, it can be a risk to investors because they're losing money in that investment in that company. Sure. And that makes so much sense to me. And I remember when I recognized uh, how limited human capital disclosure was or mandated human capital disclosure, um, it just seemed like it was, uh, you know, tied to a past era. Um, and there's certainly been a lot of um, academic reports and also industry reports with respect to how intangible assets is the majority of a firm's value uh, today. Uh, lots of research being done in terms of intangible assets. Um, there have been um, a study of the component parts of the S&P finding that the implied intangible asset value of the S&P grew to an average of 84% in 2015 from the 1970s, where it was less than 20%. So you really are seeing a shift in the asset value and the component parts of the asset, but investment by investors in the companies. And so it's much more of a, I think the reporting and the request for more information is a reflection of this shift in the makeup of the tangible and intangible asset value of companies. And so I think the investors are asking that the reporting regime catch up with that evolution of what really makes up intangible assets and what their investments are in those companies. So I think that is one of the real basis for the push for a little more disclosure about human capital management by companies. So is this limited disclosure unique to the United States? Um, What's happening in other jurisdictions? Oh, no. I think um, countries all over the world are dealing with this. Um, In France and in Denmark, they have a little more specificity in their human capital, you know, workforce composition, gender, age, you know, compensation. 
And the European Commission is doing a, uh, right now undertaking a non-financial reporting directive that would include more disclosure on human capital that they are, my words, kind of socializing to get. So all over the world, this issue is becoming uh, front and center for investors. And as you are well aware, you know, capital is global now. Mm -hmm. My old place, CalSTRS, um, which is the California State Teachers Pension Fund, while it's based here in the U.S., we were invested in markets all over the world. So this issue is coming up in all of those companies, portfolio companies that a fund like CalSTRS or CalPERS or even the BlackRocks, anyone, it's global capital. So they need information from all over the world. So the EU is doing this. There's discussion also in Asia about this, Australia investors all over the world are having these discussions about more disclosure. But it's it's been difficult to nail down specifics, but I think it's a matter of starting somewhere with certain metrics that more information would be helpful to investors. And in fact, investors did, you know, since at least 2017 and probably before that, um, they started agitating for more disclosure, right? So yeah. can, you, can you tell us a bit about the work of uh, Human Capital Management Coalition. Um, what yeah. is the HCM? Yeah, the Human Capital Management Coalition, um, it's a cooperative effort among a global group of institutional investors, asset owners and asset managers, really to elevate human capital management as a critical component of company performance. And the coalition engages companies and other market participants with the goal of improving how and understanding and improving how capital, human capital management contributes to long-term shareholder value. So there are 29 institutional investors. They represent about $4 trillion in assets under management um, in the coalition, and they include CalPERS, CalSTRS, Legal in General, APG, um, Illinois, a number of state funds here, as well as some other international funds. And one of the first things, as I think you are aware, um, that they did is to file a petition at the SEC in 2017 mm -hmm. requesting more disclosure of human capital management. And that petition really started the discussion at the commission um, about this, and other investors have come in to support the petition. But more importantly, other investors on their own are also engaging companies about this information. Mm -hmm. So the market is already moving on this, and many of the reporting regimes such as the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, are reflecting in their standards more disclosure about human capital. So the, the petition really reflects what is going on out there in the marketplace and asking the SEC to kind of catch up with what's happening in the market on mandating certain disclosure related to human capital. So then let's fast forward a couple of years to August of 2019. How did the SEC respond to this request by the HCM? Well, they did propose amendments to um, their disclosure regime, the Reg SK. And I think Chair Clayton, to his credit, has recognized that human capital is a mission-critical asset, as he has said. Mm -hmm. um, in his remarks on this issue. He has said it when they adopted the disclosure rule and proposed them in last August, and he said it before Congress numerous times. And, and so they have provided 
more, they have asked for more disclosure, again, principles based on human capital management policies and oversight by companies. So it will remain to be seen whether this, you know, sort of more specific, well, they were more deliberate in what they said about wanting more information from companies, but they did not describe a line item, you know, no additional specifics in terms of like um, rate of turnover, full-time employees, part-time contractors, some of the information that the Human Capital Management Coalition had specifically asked for in their petition. Rather, it was a larger remit to companies asking them to put in more description about their human capital management policies and procedures and information and those things that are important to that company's business. So um, we shall see if companies step up on disclosure or if the SEC needs to prod a little bit more around around this issue and more specificity. Before we move to the next topic, which I'm very excited to delve into, which is what happened at the IAC um, this week. Um, but before we do that, for the issuers on, who are wondering what the relationship is between human capital management and risk, um, I'd like to go into some specifics. Uh, so Investors understand, and that is why they have been advocating for more disclosure on human capital management. Um, but let's take one human capital management issue, diversity in particular. How does the IAC see the relationship between diversity and risk oversight? Well, um, I think the IAC, as well as many investors, recognize that diversity now can be a key success factor for companies and that with our diverse population and the need for their customers and who they're selling products to, to have that view of diversity inside the company. Studies have shown, McKinsey and others, that have demonstrated that highly diverse executive teams have higher returns, you know, better earnings performance. Companies in the top quartile for ethnic and cultural diversity were 33% more likely to have industry-leading profitabilities. Those with strong gender diversity in their executive teams um, were, have been demonstrated to have better returns. So it becomes not just a feel-good issue, as some people have said, that, mm -hmm. but rather it is a shareholder issue. Because if, in fact, you have better diverse teams and they improve performance, that in itself is a shareholder issue. And the risk of not having that and underperforming can be a risk to a, an investor's portfolio company if they're not handling those issues well. So the investors see this not just as a, you know, the right thing to do, which it can be from a cultural perspective, but it's a investment share owner, investor in, Proving the performance of the company perspective. So that is one of the reasons. Uh, and if you're not recognizing the value of diverse shareholder returns, that becomes a risk to in the portfolio on behalf of an investor and why, the, why investors have engaged with companies on the importance of diversity. And it's diversity in the boardroom, it's diversity in the C-suite, and it's diversity all the way up and down through the um, organization. Another component of the diversity that investors have spent a great deal of time is on gender pay diversity. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the changes in um, the pay levels on a diverse 
um, the gender pay diversity and have filed shareholder proposals asking for more disclosure of that, the median pay gap. Because if you're looking at a company um, that you may want to go work for and you recognize that they have this huge huge page difference from male to females that may not be an attractive company. And from the company's perspective, they want to attract the best, smartest individuals to come work for them. And so if they demonstrate that they are treating people fairly and that up and down the the pay is the same, that becomes an attractive, an attractive way to get people in to work for the company. And it can become a recruiting tool for that company. That certainly makes a lot of sense and goes back to the point that so much of a firm's value is based on intangible assets. Um, So now let's move to what happened at the IEC meeting just this week. Can you give us a, um, you know, a a sneak peek into the developments on um, ESG or human capital management in particular? Absolutely. Um, So the committee did meet this week, um, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, Amelia, and (laughs) we actually adopted a recommendation relating to ESG disclosure, asking the commission to begin to step up and address this issue. And we did this for a number of reasons. Um, One, as you and I had already discussed, and this was kind of the basis for our human capital management recommendation a couple of years ago, but this recommendation, which was broader, and it really addresses all of ESG, um, we did it for a couple of reasons. One, we think it will provide investors with that material, material comparable, consistent information that they can make investment decisions and voting decisions, as we talked about. It'll also help provide issuers with a specific framework to disclose material decision useful comparable information. Right now, as you know, issuers are being whipsawed by all the requests for information on ESG. Mm -hmm. And there are many providers out there who do ESG ratings and rankings, and you can have the same company with completely different ratings. So this would help, we're hoping that this could help maybe provide a more uniform standard for reporting so that from one company to the next, investors could understand and compare the ratings and the information that's disclosed by the by two different companies, but be able to grade it in the same way. Also, it will help with, um, I, we think it will help level the playing field among all U.S. issuers, regardless of their market size or their cap size, because the big issuers have much more resources to provide this information from the smaller companies. And if the SEC could provide some guidance, at least it could level the playing field there. Also, another thing that I think um, is important for the SEC to consider, and we suggested this in our recommendation, is that, as we talked about before, many of the regulatory bodies outside of the United States are beginning to move on ESG disclosure. Mm -hmm. Investors are signing on to the principles of responsible investing. They're going to need to report on this. The EU is pushing on some disclosures. Other countries are pushing on those. And so we think it's important for the SEC as the regulator of U.S. issuers to take a leadership role on this. So we have asked them to convene a roundtable and to begin to pull together parties to see how they could update their re- the reporting requirements on ESG disclosures. Again, we suggested that they do a flexible principles-based, but um, really elicit more specifics under that framework. 
So the recommendation is posted on our website um, if any of the um, audience would like to see it on the SEC website of the Investor Advisory Committee. Oh, absolutely. And I will definitely um, uh, share that resource uh, with the audience. Mm-hmm. So while human capital management is crucial, the glaciers are still melting, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. Investors are asking for far more specificity with respect to disclosure. I, you know, just thinking about Larry Fink's most recent letter asking issuers to use the SASB metrics and TCFD framework to report on climate risks. Um, how is the IAC addressing um, the E of ESG? Well, and it's funny you mentioned both of those because in our recommendation, we make mention of the fact that investors are asking for more information on climate risk and environmental risk using the SASB framework and the TCFD framework. What One of the things that I think is important for um, your audience to understand is the market is catching up with the demand for this. Display. You know, it's working out in the marketplace. SASB has been adopted. Many companies are reporting under that framework, as well as the TCFD framework, which is why we think the SEC needs to step up a bit and provide some more specificity. Mm-hmm. But the environmental challenges that many companies face and the risk that they can be to portfolio companies for these investors is very great. I was still at Calster's during the BP accident in the Gulf of Mexico and mm-hmm. saw the, the, the terrible impact it had on our investment in BP as a result of that. So it really drove investors to think, what are you doing from an environmental protection perspective, from a safety perspective, trying to get more specific information from companies about these climate risk issues and environmental issues. And as I said before, the SEC does have some broad language on climate change risk disclosure, Mm -hmm. but it has not been... Um, it has not, many companies have not reported under that, or if they do, it's very broad boilerplate language. So I think more specificity consistent with like a FASB reporting model um, would be very helpful for, as I said, again, to sort of level the playing field so the information would be consistent across the issuer community. That's really interesting. I'd like to um, spend just a couple of minutes talking about the um, BP disaster and how things are different now. So what I've noticed is that um, capital, of course, is concentrated in fewer large asset owners, which means the externalities of one firm affects uh, entire portfolios, right? And of course that Mm -hmm. happened um, uh, with your portfolio uh, and the BP oil spill, but do you think that the push for um, from investors for more disclosure on these topics is driven by the fact that a single firm's externalities can affect entire portfolios? Um, I think it certainly is an element of that, absolutely, because if you've got some large investors, you know, who um, who are concentrated holders of these companies, it definitely that externality is going to have a particular large impact on that investor. So I absolutely think that that um, is one of the uh, pressures and one of the uh, dynamics that is leading to the request for more disclosure around these risks, and especially environmental risks. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, so I'd like to spend the last few minutes um, with your 
other hat, uh, one, mm-hmm. of, one of many, um, your role uh, as a board member. Um, so something that can be amorphous is the role of the board in overseeing the strategy for disclosure of environmental and social risks. And as a board member, how do you see your role? Um, I see our role in making sure that the that management is working on, you know, collecting and disclosing this information. You know, what is the, as as the old adage, what gets measured gets managed. So Mm -hmm. how are we, and in the role that I'm in at L Brands, which is a retail company, the risk would be something like our supply chain risk. You know, who are our suppliers? What are their um, human capital practices? You know, what are their work practices? Where are they? What countries are they in? And so what are the risks of the supply chain? And how do we disclose that to make sure that we have a handle on that? So I think the role of the board is to make sure that management is paying attention to these strategic risk issues and that we provide the mandate and the oversight of that disclosure of those risks and making sure that we're getting the information and that the appropriate information is getting out to our investors so they can understand how the company is managing those risks. So that's that's really uh, interesting with respect to getting information and making sure that the company is disclosing information. I'd like to delve a bit deeper into the mechanics of that. So do you do that eliciting of information through board committees, through the full board? Well, the traditionally the audit committee has done some of the risk issues, but as we get into, as we talked before, say on human capital, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a high turnover rate. Um, in your workforce, or like we're seeing with the COVID situation where companies have had to furlough and making sure the employees are safe, those types of um, those types of reporting and information are sort of the the guidepost that we look at as we're making decisions about like now in the COVID situation, reopening. How are we going to reopen? What steps are we taking to make sure the employees are safe? As they go back into the stores for L Brands, it's Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret. How do we open the stores safely? How do we make sure the employees are safe? How do we make sure the customers are safe as they come into that? So the board gets a regular report of how many stores we're opening, what are the steps we're taking, how are we making sure that the shop is safe, how can we you know, disinfect those? How can we take the money? So we get regular reports at the board meeting on what those, uh, how that is being handled. And then we ask for either interim reports in between board meetings to get, um, you know, emails or do phone calls on getting that information back. So it's the same with any of these other ESG, ES issues, as I talked about, supply chain, um, whether it's you know, employees or whatever it is, depending on the nature of the business that you are, that you are in. But I think this pandemic has really focused many boards and you see it in the earnings calls this, this spring Hmm. of the questions from the analysts about what are you doing to reopen? How are you making sure that your employees are safe? You know, what are your policies around leave? If someone can telecommute, you know, if they don't feel safe going back into the office. So I think this pandemic really points out the importance of those issues related to employees and human capital. 
So I think that's going to be one of the big takeaways from the um, this situation. But on a broader level, I think the board's oversight of these ENS risks has just grown over the past few years. I think boards now are talking about these, how they're disclosing them, what the process is for reporting them, what are your internal controls to make sure they are being properly documented and reported. Those, that's the bigger role for the board in terms of managing these activities within the company. So I always like to end uh, these with <laughs> either a crystal ball, a magic wand, or both. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, if you could uh, predict where we're headed with respect to disclosure, what would that prediction be? And if you'd like a magic wand as well, if you could wave your magic wand and um, make a change, what would that be? Well, I think I'll take the second part first. And that would be that the SEC take up our recommendation in earnest and begin (laughs) a discussion about greater ENS, ESG disclosures on behalf of U.S. issuers. Mm -hmm. So that would be the second part in terms of the magic wand. But I think with regard to the first part, that I think in terms of the crystal ball, I think where we are now and this pandemic situation has, has just further reinforced the demand by investors of ESG reporting by companies. I think some people going into this because of the financial impact. You know, this was a health crisis that turned into a financial crisis Mm -hmm. um, as companies closed and as the economy slowed down. But so it really was driven by a health crisis that translated into financial crisis. So I think many people thought, oh, these other type of ESG issues are going to take back seat because investors are really only going to care about what are you doing to save, you know, to preserve your cash and what are you doing with extra cash? And do you have enough to keep the business going while we go through the slowdown? But I think companies have begun to see through the discussion about employee issues and other issues that the ESG issues are here to stay. So I do think that is going to be, and it just further complements what I would say is this slow march towards more ESG disclosure demands by investors of companies. So I think it just further cements that those requests on ESG are here to stay and that not just the real active investors, but many mainstream investors are also asking this, as you discussed with um, BlackRock, State Street's doing the same, Vanguard, many others are asking for this type of information. So I think our current situation is just going to further, as I say, strengthen that request and um, solidify that commitment that investors have to ESG disclosure in their portfolio companies. And thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing the past, the present, and the future of um, disclosure on environmental and social risks. And most importantly, thank you for being um, on the vanguard of this movement for so many years. We're so grateful. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.